Yeah. So no, Randy, I mean, here's the thing. I mean, obviously during since like this whole, um, uh, crazy world. Yeah. I started doing podcasts and, um, I, I, I really like it because one, I've gotten to meet people that I've talked to for like a long time through email, through text. And, but I actually never talked to them like kind of like this. So did yeah. create a professional. So it was cool. And even like you, I mean, I think like throughout the years we've traded like email messages and, and stuff like that, but we've never really connected formally like this. And you know what? Yeah, I did something and you have a pretty cool, you have a really cool background actually that, um, Thanks. yeah, you started, uh, so you started in the business as a manager. Well, actually before a manager, even I started as a booking agent. That was my very first gig was a booking agent at a smaller agency. That's not around. Actually, I should say a smaller midsize agency that isn't around anymore called artist and audience. But the team that was there was like Sam Kirby, who now runs UTA. She was like, she was an assistant when I was there. I was her intern. She's an assistant. Now she's co-head of music at UTA. Ken from English was another assistant, then agent. Actually, no, he was hired as his first job ever as an agent there, who's now another one of the top like agents at UTA. And um, God, who else was there? Like basically everyone there went on to have massive careers. And we had a sick roster. Like, we had the, the company was started with Nine Inch Nails and Paul McCartney. And then they built out a roster from there. Or not, not, I'm sorry, not Nine Inch Nails, Guns and Roses and Paul McCartney. Nine Inch Nails came a little bit later. So like this agency was like this little agency where this guy named Alex Cochin left um, ICM years ago and walked out with two clients being McCartney and Guns and built an agency. And that's, that's where I got my start at this, you know, burgeoning, really cool agency, which he was such a great leader, but didn't know how to run a company. But like, knew music really well and I learned really quickly kind of like how important the business side is beyond just the music because he built such a great roster of acts like we had Nine Inch Nails we had Live we had God Prodigy there's just the list could go on forever of the acts in like the mid 90s of just superstar acts that they had there but the guy couldn't run the business got an office where they couldn't afford the overhead. The second, you know, the bigger acts went off the road and just so many things that I learned in my very first gig of like, you really got to watch the numbers no matter how big the names are that you're attached to. So from booking, you went to management. Yes. And no. And yes, I did because one, when this agency kind of collapsed, I was actually being recruited to go to a competing agency as the agency was collapsing. And, you know, basically it was like, Hey, you're a younger agent. What acts could you help steal from this guy that's going out of business and bring them to, you know, come to this other company. I was like, you know what? Not interested in that. This guy helped me get my career started. I'm not trying to steal any business from him. So if that's what you're interested in me for, I'll go do something else. And I told my clients that I was no longer an agent one of those clients immediately told me that, you know, now you're the manager. If you're, if you're quitting as the agent, you're now the manager. And your first job is finding an agent. 
And this band, they were called the Pilfers. It was this reggae ska band. The singer was probably like 15 years older than me. Kind of sweetheart, but like tough guy Jamaican kind of vibe. And like in his Jamaican accent, it was like, now you're the manager. Like just basically like, this is your job. This is what you're doing. And I'd never even really thought about being a manager. And he told me that I was the band's manager. And that was that. And I run into him from time to time now. And immediately, first thing he says to me is, I told you you were a manager. And I always thank him because I wasn't even trying to do it. And he told me to become a manager. And during that time where I was managing him, I, for a while, was working at Wind Up Records doing tour marketing right when I left the booking agency just because I needed a day job because I wasn't a full-fledged manager really yet. And through time, I eventually built a real management roster and launched, you know, strictly a management company. So I've been been strictly a manager for 20 years. So. I should say strictly because now I have my hand, as I'm sure we'll talk about, in a whole bunch of other stuff too. So booking agents and yeah. booking companies, it seems like that the boutique ones don't last very long. Yeah, you know, kind of going to what I learned from the agency that I was at, one of the problems with especially a boutique booking agency, if you're going to do a great job, you want to build a really strong team to support the artists. That costs money. If you have a small roster of superstars, and superstar just means whatever, covering the nut of your overhead. So when those, if those acts go off the road for a year and a half, how are you paying the bills to cover the rest of your staff? So you, you need support with cash flow. And I think that's one of the major reasons why you see some of these more boutique agencies not last as long and eventually partner up with one of the bigger agencies or some other kind of, you know, dollar somewhere, whether it be an investor or whatever. Like you look at a company like AGI, which is one of the bigger booking agencies. They never sold to one of the major agencies, but they did a deal with Ron Burkle from Ukaipa Capital and he backs their agency so they can be a large boutique. So, so you're saying they don't last long because they're not generating that regular cash flow to sustain the business. And I, I honestly, I'm speculating to some degree, to be honest, but I think there's, there's got to be something to it. The agency business, if you don't have enough major acts, and that's where you know the major booking agencies love their music departments because it's regular income. And it's just recurring revenue flowing in until COVID came and suddenly it was a lot less recurring. But when you have major film directors or actors, they're not doing as many deals a year as music. So music is a deal a day. Every day there's a deal somewhere. But if you don't have enough of those deals to keep the lights on, the smaller you are, the less of those deals you have. No, absolutely. And uh, because we are constantly... And the music business is a very, like, it's, it's so many variables, right? There's so many variables. So now in management, one of your main clients that I think people know you for is for the band Under Oath. Yeah. Okay. What I find amazing is I don't think I ever, I can't find any manager 
that has managed and act as long as you have managed <laughs> this act because for a couple of reasons, people get bored of each other. Yeah. Um, people like change, artists like change. As you know, keeping a band together, it's harder than keeping a marriage together. Yeah. So what do you contribute this unique phenomena of you holding onto an act for 3,000 years? Yeah. And, you know, some of it, like we've gone through all those things that you've described. We went through an era where the band hated me. They were shooting a documentary on the road about their tour that kind of turned into their bitterness against me. And I mean, it's, it's amazing. Like it was never formally released, but I've seen the edits of it. And it's amazing to like be able to sit there and see the other side of people being angry at you. But I feel like one of the things with me, and I've gone through other eras with the band where we've had issues too, but I feel like the music industry is filled with egos so often. And managers have bigger egos than the artists quite often. And as well as other executives, it's not held to just managers. And you need to listen. You need to understand what's wrong, what's bothering them, what's, you know, like, what are the problems that are fixable? And a lot of times, you know, the problems aren't fixable to some people. And, you know, the structure of our deal was one of the problems that I had with the band. I'm just super transparent. Most managers probably wouldn't even talk about this. But the structure of our management deal, they were uncomfortable with after a while. And some of it, you know, I shouldn't say some of it, a lot of it came down to the fact that there's six people in a band. So if you have a band of three or even four, what your manager is making is very different, you know, percentage-wise of what you're making than if you have a band of six. So you need to structure a deal, you know, eventually if people are upset, to make them feel more equitable. And we changed our relationship for them to feel more equitable. And some managers take the feeling that I'm doing the same job, whether there's four of you, six of you, or two of you. So why should my deal change? But as a manager, I look at it and go, these are humans. What they're taking home to support their family is different because of how many members in the band there are. The manager needs to take account to that as well. So I feel like understanding those kinds of issues, and that's just one of many examples. So but, let me ask you this, Randy. You yeah. mentioned about a deal structure. Here's what's really interesting, and correct me if I'm wrong, that I mean, I've talked to numerous, I mean, I managed artists in the past. Uh, I haven't talked to managers. What I find very interesting when it comes to management is that when you talk to managers who are managing artists, not one situation is alike. The way they commission, when to commission, and how, and as how, well as how. yeah. I, I mean, it's it's all different. I mean, because the way I look at it is, and tell me if I'm wrong. An artist is a business, and you're so-called managing this business. And look at the artist like a cash register. You know, you know, it's like, oh, I'm going to pay myself. So the question is, as a manager, when does he pay himself out of that cash register? Am I right or am I wrong? Yeah, there is some of that. And it's, I mean, I wouldn't necessarily call it a cash register, but it's selecting, you know, what are you going to waive your commissions on? What are you, because... Uh, a smart manager, for the most part, 
is not going to directly invest in an artist unless they have equity in that business. Because an artist can fire you, even with a contract, it's still at will to some degree. Sure. Contracts, right. Yeah. So you're not going to invest your own money, but you are investing your time and your energy. So you need to decide where is it okay to waive a commission to help grow their future? And when is it okay to you know, back off on something where maybe the artist financially is wrong, but creatively they, they feel they're right. And you, you just have to feel those things out. And there just isn't a right or wrong answer to how to address those things. And, you know, I've found with a lot of managers, they want to manage every act they have the same way. And every decision I make for Under Oath is based on how I think Under Oath would make that decision. And what Under Oath like, puts their lens on to look at it with. And that's important. And how I'm going to look at that with you know, another act I managed for many years, a band called The Starting Line, how they're going to look at a decision is very different. And I will go to both bands to get a final decision. And I will advise them and discuss these situations differently based on how they want to be perceived by the world, how they choose to run their own business what the personalities of the band members are. And those things are all important. There, there isn't one way to, to do this. Even if you have two bands in the same genre that sound the same, the decisions are, still aren't going to be the same. No, I, I like that. And I think what you're saying is with Under Oath or the starting line, you're, you're not treating every band the same. For instance, you're, what you're really saying is for Under Oath, you're the seventh member of the band. Yeah, in a lot of ways, I am. And honestly, and that's kind of how I always looked at it. I never wanted to be that person that was looked upon as an executive or a suit in a way, because yeah. those, those are bad connotations. I always wanted to be, listen, I am like the fifth or sixth member of your band. And I think the minute the artist starts um l- losing that perspective of you, it's when things kind of get hairy. So now that we're still in the management issue, what's really interesting. So I find, correct me if I'm wrong, that like every business evolves, and I find new artists today, and I wouldn't necessarily say rock artists. Rock artists still need booking agents and the typical structure of the rock and roll business. But the new artists today coming from TikTok, female pop artists, bedroom artists, whatever you want to call them, I don't even think they know the concept of manager. You know, it depends. It depends on the act. I mean, couldn't you call Billie Eilish a bedroom act? I mean, she's a global superstar now, Mm -hmm. but she was a bedroom act and she connected with her manager fairly early and they developed together. So I, 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 I get what you're saying, but so many of the successful ones, when they go from wanting to be an artist to wanting to be a business, that's when they need that team. And the use of the industry machine has changed. It used to be you bring in that industry machine to fine tune that sound to work on your brand, to help you reach the audience. Now they're doing all of that on their own. And the manager comes in as your business partner to help you run your business. And 
personally, I think that's a healthier way of running the industry too, because in the past you have these tastemakers who are telling the world who the successful superstars are going to be. Now the world is kind of connecting. They're deciding who they want those superstars to be at times. There's still a lot of manipulation, sure. but then they also learn some of the hard work too. And I think you may see in the long run more loyal teams when the managers are capable of continuing to run that business because the artists know what they need to do to run their business. In the olden days of the industry for, you know, anything back five years before now or whatever, you know, you have the industry machine who picks up unknown artists, develops them, puts them out on the road, and they're not really doing that much of the work. Today, they're running their business and then look, they, they reach the point where they can't run their business on their own and be a creative at the same time. So they look for someone that has a like-minded vision to become their business partner. Now, when you, are you referring to like, and, and by the way, I agree with everything you're saying, you know, a couple yeah. of things, a couple of things that you said that I actually really liked. I liked that you said like the tastemakers no longer determine it's the world determines. And as you said, of course, there's some algorithmic exceptions manipulation. Yeah. <laughs> I just TikTok. You know, there was an article in Bloomberg that TikTok decides what is a hit. So, so my question is, though, again, unless I'm missing something, I find it difficult of actually pinpointing artists that have built a successful kind of homegrown machine where a manager can come over and start facilitating and running it. I, I mean, unless I'm missing something, I'm not saying they're not out there. I have a hard time finding an artist where it's like, hey, look what I built. Come on. I mean, I got it. Am I wrong? Or are you saying those are exceptions or it's a normal thing? You know, I think, you know, it's, it's, a, it's a tough question. I'm focused more on the rock world. Right. So in the, in, in the rock world, I'm still seeing, you know, those things happen. But, you know, I look at someone like Chance the Rapper, which is kind of the story that everybody goes to. And Chance and his manager, former manager, Pat the manager, you know, they allegedly, and I only say allegedly because now there's accusations going back and forth, not because I doubt them. But he, they allegedly built a business together for many years from scratch. So you do see those types of examples that happened or are happening, but I, but I understand what you're saying too. And, you know, some of it's just the shelf life for pop acts is so short right now because the A&R is TikTok. It is the world and it's, it's not allowing some of these people the time to develop their talent. And I think that's part of the problem that you're probably talking about and seeing is you, you used to have acts, you know, in the olden days, you could have five, 10 years to develop as an artist. In this TikTok era, you may have six months sometimes. No, it's true. Now, outside of management, you're also involved in other kind of music technology apps. Is that right? 
Yeah, I just, you know, going back to years ago, I worked at Red Light Management. And when I was there, I started realizing on a regular basis, tech companies were coming in to pitch us to fix problems they perceived were problems that weren't problems at all for our industry. But you'd have these brilliant people come in the room and tell you how they were going to fix your problems. And what I learned in engaging with a lot of these people was they were interesting. They had great ideas. They were misguided about where our problems were quite often, but they had the ability to fix problems that were real. And I started pushing back on a lot of these entrepreneurs that would come in the office and tell them what I felt they were doing wrong and how they can improve their product. One of the things that you'll find in the music industry quite often is someone will be like, I like this or I don't like it. They're not going to be strategic and you know, detailed in what they don't like. And I just really found myself liking these people and wanted to share where I thought they were missing. And through that, I built a lot of relationships with brilliant people in the music tech startup space. And in that, I started getting asked to advise for a handful of companies, invest in some companies. I was an early investor in the company Bands in Town. And they were one of those examples where they came to me with a solution to a problem. And the solution to this problem was artists don't like having to update their tour dates on at that point in time, it was Facebook. We can do it for you. We'll scrape the internet find all the information on Ticketmaster and all the other ticketing sites and put it onto your tour dates on your behalf so you don't have to do it. And I said to them, I said, that's great, but we still need control over this because false information is out there everywhere. So a bunch of people were just kind of telling them, no, I don't want to work with you. I sat down with them and said, you need to change this tool so that managers or labels or whoever is accessing it can control and edit this information that you're finding from scraping the internet. And through that minor change, they went from a product that people were afraid of that they saw as spreading, you know, disinformation about their acts to now being able to manage that data. And they went from a company whose main tool was scraping data and hoping that it was clean to artists cleaning their data for them on their behalf and then giving it to their fans. So the artists actually made their product better once they made that minor change. And then the artists were willing to use it, which then gave a better product to the fans. So that's one example of how these people, they came in and, you know, they were smart, but they just didn't see what they were missing. And I enjoy just kind of ripping products apart. It's just, it's, it's fun to tell people what they're doing wrong when you're doing it with people who want to hear that. You know, that's, that's the key. If you tell a musician they're playing wrong or their songs are wrong, we, we all know how that conversation goes. But when you're dealing with that with entrepreneurs who thrive on, you know, creative criticism, you know, it's, it's so different. And I've just found it refreshing over the last decade to be able to share that constructive criticism and help people build better products. So it's just, it's been a fun thing for me. And I was early investor in bands in town. I've been an advisor for a company called at venue for, I think about eight years now and at venue built a tool that gives artists 
promoters and festivals the same power that a POS system that a retailer has in like a major retail chain. So like, you know, you take like a McDonald's or someone, they know exactly how much food they have in inventory in that store, how much are on the trucks on the way, how much is in the warehouses. They know how many burgers they're selling a day. They know that on Saturdays, they sell more than on Thursdays. And we're able to take all that kind of data and bring it to the music merch business. So I've got very involved with that company who are doing incredibly well. And, you know, it's, it's fun just to learn from these tech people and help them better learn about our business as well. So now speaking about tech and changes, it was only like, I think last year when this pandemic hit that under oath, didn't they do like some live streaming thing that made some waves? Yeah, so it's going back to 2020, actually. Oh, wow. we, yeah, we were. I lost, we track, were, I lost track of time. Yeah, we, we were pretty early on that tip. We we watched early on in the pandemic. You had a handful of artists who went into nightclubs and tried to replicate what a live show used to be like, where they're standing on stage. There's an empty room and then a camera at the back wall. And the thought process was, let's replicate a live show and sell it to an audience. And understood what and why they were doing that. Then the only other option for streams was the artists who had a camera in their living room and were kind of giving that at-home moment with an artist. And what we put together with Under Oath was this concept of, let's replicate the emotion of a live event rather than what a live event looks like. And we set up the band playing in the round with cameras on the inside pointing outward at each of the band members. And what that did is it brought the fans into the room with the band. And the band were all looking at each other, feeding off of each other, rather than staring at blank space, which is just really demoralizing to do. So in doing that, we just we were the first act that I'm aware of that created a piece of content that was truly produced for the digital fan at home rather than just kind of like, oh, let's film something to give people something to watch. And the other piece of the puzzle with that is the band played their three biggest records start to finish. And then we did vinyl reissues for each of these records. We did um, re-imaged merch to tie into each era of the band's career. And for three weeks, they played each of these albums in their entirety. We did merch drops, we did vinyl drops, and they ended up grossing almost a million dollars from this. And this is a band that, you know, that number a million dollars is, you know, they, they don't have deals that make them that kind of money anywhere across the board in their career. This was, an insane amount of money. They ended up in 2020 making more money through live events being their short streaming series than they would have made in true in-person live events. So we kind of just, you know, went out there and we wanted to change the field. And it's something that Under Oath's always been passionate about. It's just finding ways to do things differently. And, you know, just show the world that you don't have to do what everyone else is doing. And yeah, go on. 
<laughs> no, no, I, I think that's fantastic. So now do you think like live streaming, obviously live streaming was very common during this whole lockdown. Do you think that live streaming will kind of, I would say disappear because it is associated with a lockdown and that's everyone was kind of focusing on. Like, do you think that the actual pandemic hurt the business of live streaming in leading into the future? Yeah, I truly don't think so. And I I look at this as you're, you're doing a few things with streaming of premium content now. One of them is you had this market of DVDs for 20 years. And, you know, before that, the home VHS market. This was, you know, a couple of hundred million dollar a year business of presenting concerts, pre-produced concerts, and some documentary footage to fans globally. And people ate that stuff up. So one, there's that type of content that's been proven to work. Then you have the the mad rat rush that you saw last year when clubs started opening of these live streaming companies to just throw cameras in clubs, that concept of it. I don't think there's a real demand for that. It's just, if I, you know, kind of what I was describing with under oath, we created content that was different than you could get. If you were in a club, you felt like you were in the room with the band rather than in a room looking at the band. even. So, what I feel is going to happen is you're going to see more premium content kind of like, you know, I also now work with this company called moment house who creates premium um, digital content for fans globally. And we do things like we had Kygo play on top of a glacier in Norway. It's not, you know, having Kygo in a nightclub with a camera on it. It's creating that grand moment. And one of the areas that, we're very active on right now. We've had a ton of success with the artists from Halsey to Under Oath to Aurora to God, I can go on and on, where we're creating cinematic album moments. And through this, we're filming artists on their album launch to create a film around the launch of their album and releasing that globally in conjunction with the album release. So in the past, you would do a record release show in one city and hope to get good press that travels globally. The way most of these other live streaming platforms are looking at it, they go, oh, we should put a camera into that record release party so people could see it. And our vibe is don't do that, spend real money, create a brilliant film around that content, and then create an important, social global moment and then also take that content and cut it down and use it for future marketing purposes over the course of the album life cycle. So I look at live streaming as something additive to the marketing budget for record labels if approached correctly. Now, what about the backlash on Spotify? Artists, what are your thoughts on that? Do you mean artists disliking Spotify? Yes. You know, people hate. You know, you know, the, people hate the future. They hate new technology. There's always going to be a backlash against new technology and new ways. And 
I understand there's aspects that need to be improved. Songwriter royalties, I think there's still a room to improve on. But one of the things that people miss with Spotify is they go, if I sold my record at a show, I'd make $5 on every record. But what everyone forgets about in that argument is you make $5 and that's it. That's all you make forever on that fan. If you sell streams over the long period of time and a fan is listening to you for 20 years, you're making more money over those 20 years from that fan than you would have made from that single CD sale. So I think we need to look at where our frustrations with Spotify are coming from and readjust our perspective. That said, I have tons of issues with aspects of of Spotify or the other DSPs, but Spotify more so. And the biggest one is the devaluation of the album. They claim now, you know, the fans aren't interested in albums and they're not interested in albums because they can't find albums on Spotify. I go to the new release page on Spotify. I click on something that may be a new album and it ends up being just a single. And training fans to not be able to find albums is damaging artists who, for the most part, a large portion of artists still want to share their music as a full body of work. And they're making it incredibly challenging for artists to continue sharing their work as a full body of art. And that I'm incredibly frustrated with. And I know that there's solutions to make it better. I had a Twitter fight with Daniel Eck like three years ago about this. And his response was, it's hard to do this. And I call bullshit on him. But my suggestion was on the new release page, you should have a single toggle and an album toggle so that fans can discover albums. There's a huge portion of fans that want to listen to albums, that enjoy listening to full albums from artists. And I believe they could make listening to full albums a reality. Now, so you're th- so what you're claiming is that Spotify has devalued the album. Yeah. Okay. Has it also DSPs devalued the artist? Yeah, I think I think that's fair and some of that comes from as you devalue the album and you put more emphasis on the playlist than the album, there's less listeners of multiple songs of one artist. So therefore, it's going to devalue the artist. I don't believe that any of the DSP's motivation is to devalue the artist, but I do believe that some of their actions to super serve the audience who really wants to only hear the hits is in the long run going to do damage to the artists and their careers. Because you're going back to that like 1950s singles model. Yeah. If, if, you know, in my comments and my suggestions in Spotify or any DSPs is their storefront is, I think is really not good. Because, I mean, you heard about this, you heard about the news where 60,000 tracks were uploaded on Spotify a day, right? Yeah, sounds about right. 
Okay. And the truth is, if you look on Spotify or, or it looks like a colossal mess, I mean, you, you just like literally are going down, you know, looking at playlists and new music Friday and fresh finds and all this stuff you're hearing, like you're literally, literally, it's just too much. It's too much. And like, I mean, it goes back to simple marketing that you give, you don't offer a thousand flavors of ice cream because someone's going to walk out of the store very stressed. They want the basics. And so to me, the music industry has done itself a disservice by presenting this colossal mess. And the film and TV industry is doing the same thing now as well. I agree. Think how many, like, it used to be, oh, did you see this episode of a show that people have heard of? Now it's, have you seen this show and you've never even heard of it? And it happens on a regular basis. There's so much content out there. It's too much. That it's difficult for people to know what it, you know, we used to know what all of the content was, but that's the democratization of content. Like, is it our generation? We look at it as wrong. There's, as you said, it's too much. It's only too much if the market says it's too much. And like, I'm very much a free market believer. I, 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 I'm free market too, but here's yeah, the you're thing. probably way more than I am. That's another conversation. <laughs> yeah. but, but no, but, but here's my thing of why I think it's, it's not good. Listen, I mean, imagine if Apple said, guess what? We're going to launch 10,000 new products this quarter. No, it's, it's very focused. Imagine a pharmaceutical company. Hey, hey, Randy, you have a sinus infection? Guess what? We have literally 60,000 drugs that yeah, you can, can choose <laughs> for your sinus infection. You're like, uh, you know, and it's the same thing with music. I mean, listen, I'm all for it, but, but there has to be order. It's not a disservice to anybody one is trying to get new music or a new film out there. You competing against all this stuff isn't really good for you. There should be a barrier. There should be this kind of a, um, there needs to be some kind of sensible kind of thing rather than just throwing everything out. Pick your favorite comedy movie. We're just going to show you like 10,000 titles to pick from. I, I just think there's a better way. Actually, I think it's very unfair to the consumer. Yeah, no, I, I totally get what you're saying and agree that it's difficult to the consumer. But the problem is who dictates and how what is going to be listened to and what isn't and what's going to be available and what makes that fair? Like, who's to say that that little act that no one knows who they are and maybe shouldn't have gotten through your regulation? should be let through. And it's, I, I, I feel like the problem is everyone has a right to be there and we shouldn't have regulation as music of music as much as we as professionals in the industry would like it. Yeah. It's not necessarily the solution, but they've created, the makers of these platforms have created these problems and they should be part of the solution too. How about this? There needs to be, okay. And by the way, and I agree with you, I'm not saying anything should be shunned. I agree. But 
there needs to be like more better categories. I don't, I, it just needs to be more focused. It's like, think about it. When you went into a record store, I'm not, by the way, I'm not asking anyone to return to any type of day, but I'm saying when you went to the record store, you saw like new releases. I mean, even though there were thousands of records in a store, you did not feel overwhelmed. Exactly. There was a platform. Have you ever heard of a, a older DSP that's Pandora bought years ago and shuttered called RDO? R-D-I-O. So RDO built what you want and it's been dismantled for like eight or nine years already. It had a beautiful interface. The UX was a dream. You went to the new release page. It had a toggle of singles and albums. And then it had an algorithm that is displayed all new releases based on the number of listens that each album had so far. So it would update and it was like an endless scroll of every new release that came out for the week. And you could easily see all the important records that came out in a week. And then one click to add to a queue so that you could build a queue of all the albums that you want to listen to for the week. So in my opinion, it replicated going to the record store, seeing the major new releases that were out, and then being able to kind of walk out with them and listen to them as you want throughout the week. And that's the best solution that I've seen. And unfortunately, that company was shuttered many years ago already. And it looked better than any of the DSPs look now. And it was like eight years ago. And another thing, they need to improve upon the, I say they, I was like, who's they? But they need to improve upon the experience that connects music to the consumer. That I think has been lost through these DSPs. There has to, there has to be a better experience. Would you agree? Yeah. I do, but it's, it's a double-edged sword. And this is where, you know, I put on my tech hat and where I feel like I've done well consulting and working for a lot of tech music, tech startups. The other side of the argument is most people just want to hear the hit. They're listening to the radio to hear the hit. They were buying that 1899 CD at Sam Goody to hear the one hit. And now they could come to Spotify and hear just the one song and not be ripped off to have to pay all that money to hear the hit. But there needs to be a happy medium where fans, they don't necessarily need to pay more. I don't even know that it's about paying more or the artists making more even, but it's how the, the fans can hear more from the artists that they engage with. And, you know, I have to say, Platforms like Spotify have tried. You know, you have tools like um, Fans First, I think they call it, where, you know, you'll get, you know, because you've listened to the Black Keys so much, here's access to buy the vinyl to their new album before anyone else or to get tickets. They are trying to build out these things. But my personal feeling is that they're building tools to placate the music industry rather than building tools that consumers are, are going to want to demand. 
So I think they're, they're basically reacting to people like us complaining rather than truly figuring out what the market is going to react to. And they need to offer better tools to cause fans to engage more with artists. And, you know, there's another thing they've been trying. They have their merch integrations to help artists sell merch. It just doesn't work. There's very little sales that come from those merch integrations. So I do see them trying. I think they need to completely wipe the slate clean and look for new ways to integrate with fans. And in my opinion, it comes back to my biggest argument with the, with Spotify, but some of the other DSPs as well as the devaluation of the album. I think if they increase the value of the album, it would increase the engagement time with the artists, with the fans, with a singular artist, which would then allow them to help them sell more concert tickets and more merchandise. And Spotify is very interested in helping artists sell more concert tickets. Are they interested in it because they want the artists to sell more tickets? or they want to see affiliate fees from the ticketing companies, who knows? But at the end of the day, it doesn't matter what their motivation is, but they are motivated. And my feeling is that you need to build a central hub of the album. And the album may be the EP, it may be the group of songs, it may be the full artist short playlist, not their, you know, the this is, and then every song by the act. But there needs to be some new focus on collections of artist songs rather than singles. And that will change the overall fan awareness of artists. Now, TikTok, for example, I mean, that definitely, definitely is not a platform that has favored the album. No, <laughs> hasn't even favored the song. Right, correct. Yeah, TikTok to me, I think we think alike. I mean, I think when we're on a platform, I think we know what we're getting ourselves into this platform, right? We, we, we don't completely buy into it. We know what we're buying into. Okay. Um, with uh, TikTok, to me, it was like social media on steroids. Uh, TikTok came around and like, all right, what, what, what we're doing with Facebook and Instagram and Twitter, we are like this behemoth. We're adding all those elements. And, 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 and here is, here's my thing with TikTok. I'm not sure. Is this social media's last hurrah? If you look at TikTok, it might be in a way that, I don't know. I just think TikTok, it's like, it came out of time where I think society was burnt out on social media a little bit. Like, I mean, people are arguing. I mean, politics infiltrated social media. Uh, it, it just became a, but TikTok came along and said, all right, no one's stop your arguing. Stop. We're, we're just going to have fun again. And yeah. you're, we're going to be the platform where your grandma can go ahead and sing and we're going to blow her up and get her fans. Right? Yeah, totally. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I mean, there's certainly a lot of that. And, you know, it's, it, it's like you said, it's a reaction to all the negativity. But, you know, in, in my opinion, the first social media almost was the phone book. You opened up the phone book. And it connected you to everyone in your community. And you then went from like the phone book to the phone book being online, which I remember actually using, to Friendster, to MySpace, to Facebook, to Instagram, to TikTok. These are just new ways 
that we use to communicate with people. Right. And to say that we're not going to have new forms of communication with people, I don't believe will be the case. But I, 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 I get what you're saying, though, that it's, it's, it's the beginning of a new era. And, and what I mean, Randy, and I agree, you're right. Social media is communication. What I'm saying, it was a bizarre way to communicate. I mean, I think the way it's deep, I don't know how to describe it, but I mean, for, I would probably say since 2009, you know, the debut of Facebook, I know it came out earlier, but it's when things started really hitting the masses, uh, humanity has just a weird way of, 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 of talking to each other and, and, and integrate, you know what I'm saying? I, I totally know what you're saying. And, you know, I'll go a step further to say that Facebook encouraged that, you know, there's documentaries to talk about it. And I feel like you and I are an outlier in this, but also a perfect example of this is you and I have pretty differing political views, right? But we're both very open-minded people while having differing political views. Based on Facebook's algorithms, they want to anger me and anger you. So they show each of us our posts that oppose each other. While many people turn that into a fight, this is where I say we're the outliers, where we look to find common ground and have interesting conversations. So unfortunately, the majority of society was turned against each other from these things, which is why people are now turned off and onto TikTok. And right. I mean, it's, but it's interesting because it depends on the person too, because I feel like our differing opinions and social media made us friendlier. But I, I feel like very, very few people could say that. And it takes a certain type of person to befriend someone because you disagree. And unfortunately that just doesn't sum up most of the world. No, and Randy, and I agree with you. I mean, I think Facebook is very insidious. These people were. They're very, as yeah. you said, they, they literally designed these platforms to turn people against the, each other. I mean, they would like literally, isn't it amazing? Like if you liked something, just like something, another person, it may be with opposing view, it would come on their newsfeed what you liked. Yeah. And they might get mad at you for liking something. Yeah, it's crazy. Randy likes something that I didn't like. Unfriend. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's, it's insane, except it's not unfriend because their goal is not unfriend because unfriend means lack of engagement. They want to increase the engagement. So they're doing it. They're going to show you that I said something that's going to elicit a response. If I said something that was going to make them unfriend, I'm sure their algorithm would not show them that because that slows engagement. Like if I said something blatantly racist, which is just not in my body, but if I did, they may not show that to a social justice warrior friend of mine, because that would just get them to unfriend me and lose engagement moving forward. No, you're you're absolutely right. And and another thing is what I can't believe the the world we're living in today. I mean, it's almost feels like it's a, it's surreal, my dreaming, but no matter what your beliefs are, I mean, and and social media is responsible for this and all this and algorithms, but you could literally talk to something, talk to someone about a, whether it's this war. Yeah. And they could have 
a total different set of facts and a narrative. Like we're almost like, so when I talk to somebody about, I would say hot topics in society, my first question is going into a conversation with them today. I have no idea what that feedback's going to be because I actually don't know what cycle or what fee they are into. Yeah. I have, I have a friend and actually I've just mentioned a couple of friends. So I have a friend in Ukraine who created all the digital content for under oath on their last album cycle. Talk to him all the time. He's gone from video director to, you know, like we talk and I'm following him on Instagram. He's digging ditches and, you know, helping to build um, Maldive cocktails and hiding in his basement in Kiev in an apartment building. I mean, it's horrible what I'm seeing, but I'm talking to this friend. Then I'm talking to a former promoter friend in Moscow who I've stayed friendly with for years, who now works for a contractor who supplies software for militaries. So you could guess where his views are going to be. And, you know, having conversations with this friend in Moscow, and it's like talking to someone with completely different sets of facts. And it's really difficult to have this friend who's getting attacked, literally bombed by this guy's country and have you know some degree of affection towards both of them. But it's really, really hard. And I actually just stopped replying to my friend in Moscow who's justifying that they need to, you know, eliminate the fascists and Nazis and um, nationalists in Ukraine. Cause I just, I can't take any more of it, but I take the stance where I'm not going to tell him to fuck off and he's a shitty person because those are his beliefs and it blows my mind. I reached out to him hoping that he was going to be one of those people that didn't. Well, here's the thing. Well, here's the thing, Randy, it was funny is you, you, you surf, I think I kiteboard. So, yeah. I mean, and, and kiteboarding attracts like people from all over the world. So I yeah, surfing is the same way. Right. Ironically, I kite with a guy from Moscow and yeah. I kite with a guy who borders Ukraine. So oh, wow. now both of them have opposing views. Yeah. I mean, there's no doubt about it. And like when I talk to the guy in Moscow, you're almost like, wait, what, what side should I be on for a second? You fall, yeah. because they're very convincing and, and they're and and they're very they, they give you a different part of history that they're not running on the news. Okay. But here is the thing. Ironically, I was actually Facebooking and, and talking to this guy who I kiteboard, and then yeah. I saw the guy from Ukraine unfriended me. I'm yeah. like, you actually see her conversation like crazy. But yeah. here's but here is one problem that I have in this whole situation. Okay. Why is America canceling Russia? Why should the people in Russia, the opera singers and artists, they're not responsible for their government actions? Why we are affecting them? Do you follow what I'm saying? I I follow what you're saying, but it it gets tricky. And I, I struggle with this, to be honest. You have like the opera singer who's supporting Putin blatantly. And that's, I don't remember her name, but I've, I've read. I'm not about talking her. about a particular no, opera no, singer. No, I'm, I know. But like, I'm, but what I'm saying is there was one specific one and it's like that one, it's easier to support canceling them. The one who is being quiet 
because they don't want to get into trouble at home and absolutely despise what's going on, but fear for their safety and their, you know, way they support their family if they speak out. Us canceling that one, it's it's different. It's it's a very different situation. And I I truly understand why people would want to cancel that person, but that person also may be keeping their mouth shut for their own personal safety. And you don't know all the facts. And this is where like, I talked to my friend in Moscow who I disagree with his opinions on because I want to hear from the source. I don't want to hear from any media or social media or TV network. I want to hear what a person I know on the ground there is saying. Doesn't mean I'm going to agree with them, sure, but I'm going to go out and research on my own to hear everything that he quotes as to why he has those beliefs to maybe understand why we got to this point. You know, he hasn't changed my view and I think that this war is wrong, but I understand more that of where that side is coming from. And I don't agree right. with it, but you know, when it comes to artists, I've, I've struggled a lot with this over the last week where, you know, all these streaming platforms are stopping doing business with Russia. And I understand the thought process but I also look at it and say some of these Western artists have music that can get to these Russians and help open their mind to the Western point of view further. And we could be doing damage to our voice from the West if we're not engaging with them. So, you know, it's kind of like you look at um, Radio America or whatever, you know, that thing is that we've had in past wars, like in World War II or Vietnam, like the Voice of America. That's what it's called. Like, remember, remember the movie Good Morning Vietnam? I, I do. Well, well, you know, Randy, here, here's my opinion on that. Here's my, I don't think people, especially in, in places like Russia and China, where the people should, the citizens of a country should be held responsible of decisions by the government, especially when they're not even, if, them, if you get what I'm saying, like, why should citizens be targeted and are responsible for governments they didn't even necessarily elect who were making decisions. So guess what? Target the the, the government, target those people. But but the but but for an an eighty year old Russian Russian yeah. grandmother that's starving to death that can't yeah. take out her money because we're we're we're, we're doing these. I'm not sure if I agree with that. Yeah, I mean where where it gets difficult though is Russia is allegedly a democracy. And I say allegedly for obvious reasons, right? But Putin was elected. If it's if it's a dictator who, by military force, took over, I would have different opinions than I would on a democratically elected leader. Whether he was fairly democratically elected, you know, that's that's another conversation sure. that I I don't have the facts to have an opinion on. I'm not, I get it. not even insinuating he wasn't. But I, as I said, I talked to Russian friends who support this too. So it's, 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 you know, war is never easy. There's a lot of collateral damage in war. And, and the side that for the most part started it, you know, the only thing you can pin on Ukraine is in this disputed region that they were fighting over that it seems to be a very two-way fight just in this one small little region. But right. Russia has now taken it out of that region. And, you know, like, I look at my friend who's my video guy for years for Under Oath, who's being bombed 
Like what's, what's worse, struggling to find food because of something that your democratically elected government did or having bombs dropped on you because of something your democratically elected government did. And it's, it's difficult. And I, I, I respect where you're coming from, but th- these aren't easy. No, I agree. Randy, and I agree what you said too, actually. And I agree with this, that how us canceling actual Russia, not the government, we can cancel yeah. the government, but the Russia, like with music, American music, and just kind of erasing them. I, I don't, I don't see like nothing ever good will come out of that. What I realized in humans, the Russians aren't going to wake up one day, the government be like, you know what guys, <laughs> we're wrong. We give up. We can't take it anymore. I mean, these things just fester and fester and fester and fester. And I think that when you cancel like a whole nation, you're making it personal. You're making yeah. it personal against America versus Russians rather than America regime against government regime. It's like the Muslims. Yeah. It's like the Middle East. It's like you have a couple of um, mullahs that rally Muslims up, but not all the Muslims are bad. It's kind of like the same argument there. Yeah, I mean, but what you get into is anytime you kind of start talking about, you know, like the Muslims, the Iranians, right. the Russians, you're, you're starting to work into, you know, two things, religion and nationalism. Correct. And the problem is religion plus nationalism plus social media is just, <laughs> and that's, and that's, and truly right. that's the problem. I mean, you know, any of these things, you're just pouring gasoline on the oh. fire and there, there aren't, you know, in America, we have plenty of nationalists here sure. that, you know, they say they love our country and they say that those who question our country don't love our country. And that's very much like you're seeing in many of these other places in the world. And they're just, there aren't easy solutions. But one of the things that has helped more than anything else, I think, is entertainment coming from America and infiltrating these places in the world and sharing, you know, oh God, I was going to sound really cheesy. I was going to say sharing freedom, which is not really what I even mean, but like sharing just a different way of life. And that's, that's where I struggle. Like, you know, going back to my example of mentioning about Voice of America, if we decided that we weren't going to broadcast Voice of America during Vietnam or these other wars to try to win over the other side, that's sort of what's happening with canceling music in these places now where you can't influence society through our Western entertainment if we're shutting down all relationships. And look there can the Mos- be some positive from that. Look look at the, Mos- I mean, look at the, remember the Moscow Peace Festival? Oh yeah. I mean, man, what a different time when, think about it. And that's exactly what I mean. Look but at- we, We'll get to those things again. Like we're, we're in the moment where there's a war right now. Yeah where rhetoric is on a hundred at some point in time, Putin will be out of office, whether it's one year or 15 years. I mean, it's like, you look at Cuba now, Cuba is not the evil regime. It was 40 years ago. And I'm not saying that, you know, they're perfect, but there's change. Russia went from one thing to another, to another far extreme. Now, it'll change. And that's, that's the good thing with the world. And that's where like, honestly, like bringing this to what we're talking about is music and entertainment. That's where I feel like entertainment has so much power 
because that is one of the only common denominators that brings Agreed. people together. As I said, you and I have very differing views on so many things in the world. Music brings us together. Right. And it's so important. So I will agree with you that the canceling of music between societies is scary in that sense, a hundred percent. Well, as you said, Randy, like here is the thing. As you said, we're different. We have different views. But honestly, I think like you and like I've had always different views, and people always had different views, but we actually have more similarities. It's just but social media and our culture wanted to amplify the differences. Oh, the differences. Yep. Totally. I mean, listen, it's like a marriage. I'm married. I'm sure you're married. I believe you're married. Yeah, I mean, yeah. I, if, if I were to look at my wife, I'd probably sit there and say, there's a lot of differences. A yeah, lot. Exactly. But, but, and, and enough for each, the, I say, you know what? Let's throw in the towel. Look at all the differences. But I mean, and it's the same thing in society. I mean, but anyway, you, you make, there's common grounds. You make it work. And um, as you said, social media amplified it. Uh, yeah. So, so lastly, uh, I mean, so, so what do you, and here's another thing, actually, I feel that as the world continues to spin, I actually don't even don't know where my place is in it as far as views, because I feel like everything is so out there. Sometimes I don't even know where I sit anymore. Does that make yeah. sense? Oh, totally. I mean, my views can be radical right and left at the same time, depending on the issue. Like I, I primarily identify on the left, but that doesn't mean that I support everything that they say and do too. You know, we're, we're in an era right now where if I say that the right did something positive, it's how dare you compliment them? And it's like, no, like this one little thing, like I'm trying to remember, somebody said something that Ted Cruz said the other day. Oh yeah. Ted Cruz, this is very timely for right now. Ted Cruz is anti-daylight savings time. And I was like, yes, there's something I could agree with the guy on. I can't stand the concept of changing the clocks twice a year too. And I was like, everyone I dislike with, I could find some common ground with. And I feel like nobody wants to look for the common ground. And if I complimented Ted Cruz on social media for being against that, I guarantee you someone would attack me in some way, shape or form. And that's, that's what's wrong today. It's like, I, I love looking for that common ground. So, so Randy, so what are you, so anything you're working on right now? So before, uh, you know, we depart anything like yeah. cool you're working on right now, like anything in the last. Yeah. The couple. two, the, yeah. The two coolest things I'm working on is just this under oath tour has been just a blast to put something together again, have people on the road for the first time. By the time this airs, the tour will probably be just wrapping up. But um, to have sold out shows across the country and just be back to work again is really exciting. I mean, it's been challenging with COVID and dealing with different COVID policies. And, you know, you have a crew member test positive and then you can't get into Canada and all these other headaches that come along with it. But the other thing that's just been really exciting to me is using new technology to engage fans and, you know, going back to what I was saying with moment house, building these premium album experiences is creating a new way to launch albums to people. I'm excited by that. I'm genuinely excited by where the world's going with metaverse. And I hate hearing people talk about NFTs and the metaverse nonstop every day. It makes me sick hearing it, but there's aspects to it that are awesome. 
Like I watch my kids play Roblox every day and they couldn't care less about fiat currency. All they want are Robux. Robux are more important to them than literally real dollars. Someone handed them five bucks, they're going to hand it to me and say, give me Robux for it. So watching this change in nature of kids and thus is going to be a whole generation that's going to change to this virtual engagement with entertainment, I, I'm just really excited about in general. Like I saw um, this morning that was announced that... Um, that um, Bob Iger joined the board of Genies, which is an avatar company where you can bring your avatar to multiple metaverse platforms. And he joined the board of that and made a major investment. And this is going to allow you to sell the Under Oath shirt that and your, you know, that your kid or whoever is playing a game can wear that avatar of that shirt in multiple gaming platforms, and will eventually allow me to shell, sell a shirt for maybe double the price but allow all of their avatars to wear it as well. So like, well, I'm not deeply working on these things. I'm watching them and I'm having conversations with people about it. And I'm genuinely excited about where some of these things are going. Like I look at everyone talking about NFTs all day, every day. And what they are this second, I don't buy into for 99.9% .9 of them. But there's really cool applications to them and to the metaverse that are coming and are going to be fun for a new generation and new legitimate revenue streams that fans weren't want versus just simply companies raising hundreds of millions of dollars to you know sell you an overpriced jpeg and when is under oath dropping a new album they released an album in january of this year so probably no music again this year, but, you know, in this new um, algorithms of DSP's world, I wouldn't rule out new music this year either. Right. I mean, it makes sense. Now, yeah. and lastly is um, under, under oath. I mean, you're, you're an album guy and I agree yeah. album, the body of work guy. So, I mean, it makes sense that under oath would probably never be morphed into one of those bands that are dropping a track a month for the next two or three years? You know, I never rule anything <laughs> out. You know, and with this last album for Under Oath, we released five songs before they put out their album because we wanted to engage with how fans engage with music now. And we did something really cool, which I'll share because it kind of ties into some of our social media and privacy and some of these other conversations we've had. We did something really interesting, almost like an art project slash social commentary around launching each of these tracks from their new album. Each track, we put out one minute samples four or five days before we put the songs on the DSPs. And we had it on a website called voyeurist.io. That's the name of the record is Voyeurist. And on this website, the only way you could listen to the one minute sample of each new song was to turn on your webcam and broadcast yourself listening to it. So if you want to listen to it, you turn on your webcam. If I want to listen to it, I turn on my webcam and we're watching each other listen to the song. And we did it kind of as just kind of like a commentary on society. Everybody's wanting to be on stage now. Everybody's also staring at bands and any decision that somebody's made at any point in their life that put on blast for the rest of their life about it which is why we had this series that we did around their album launch called Digital Ghost, which is talking 
thing about, you know, everybody has these digital ghosts following them for the rest of their life for anything they've ever said and done. So we tucked this spin on it and we said, you know, the band is always on stage performing. If you want to hear this music early, we're going to put you on stage. You're the performer. You're giving up your privacy in exchange for something you want, where normally the band is giving up their privacy for something they want to share their music with the world. So we did this thing for each of the five songs when we released it. We put it up on this page a couple of days early, and you'd have these thousands of fans broadcasting themselves so they could hear the music. And it was just a really fun way of just kind of twisting how people look at the world. That's amazing. Thanks. Wow. So it's truly like, I mean, and that's another thing is like, I mean, we're truly at a point where the fans are engaged with the artist. And that's what I do like about today, right? I mean, you see the engagement. The engagement is real time, right? Yeah. I mean, so, all right, Randy. Well, I'm going to actually head, um, get something to eat. What are you doing now? What are you going to do? Now? I'm going to, I'm going to finish off my emails and texts that I've missed. Let's see. God knows how many I have. I'll be chatting midday, which is all good. Cause I enjoy doing these kind of conversations. This was fun. And hopefully it's a beautiful day. Hopefully check out and go down and look at the ocean before the day ends. And how far Always do you live? From good the, way. And, and how and do you live right near the ocean? Yeah. I'm in long beach in New York, three blocks from the ocean. Okay. I'm about, about the same. I'm actually in New Jersey. So um, I live right across, pretty much right across from New York. Uh, I don't know if you're familiar with um, the Jersey shore area, but yeah, I can see it from our boardwalk. And, and, and I, and I can see the other side from our, our place. So um, yeah, we can see the Atlantic islands and like that whole like Sandy hook. That that, that, that's, that's, that's where I am. Yeah. That's what I figured. Cause we can see you and you can see us. Right, okay, there before sense. and you can see down to us. Right. So exactly. So we literally, that's exactly where I live in yeah. Atlantic Highlands Highlands. We probably live like 15 miles away from each other, but it takes like three hours to get there. Is it a crazy? Yeah, if we had get, a boat, we'd be really close well, to each other. Well, on a good wind day, I'll, I'll get my kite out there. Maybe I'll try cruising the other side. Yeah, exactly. Good luck Hope, getting back. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Hoping the wind doesn't poop out. So yeah. Uh, all right, Randy. Oh, well, it's great chatting with you. Yeah, we'll be in touch. Sounds good. Bye-bye. All right. Bye.